I can tell you, uh, I've just been a place that I have uh, been to that, frankly, uh, no firefighters want to go to. Behind me, UC Burning 7 World Trade Center. Welcome to Journalism History, a podcast that rips out the pages of your history books to re-examine the stories you thought you knew and the ones you were never told. I'm Terry Finneman, and I research media coverage of women in politics. And I'm Nick Hershon, and I research the history of New York sports media. And I'm Ken Ward, and I research the journalism history of the Great Plains and Rocky Mountains. And together, we are professional media historians guiding you through our own drafts of history. This episode is sponsored by Taylor & Francis, the publisher of our academic journal, Journalism History. Transcripts of the show are available online at journalism-history.org podcast. 20 years ago, I was a high school student in New York City when the World Trade Center was attacked. I have many memories from that day. My dad rushing home from work just before the subway shut down, my mom fishing out an American flag from our basement to hang on our front door. My neighbors congregating on the street to watch the thick plumes of smoke billowing from lower Manhattan. I wanted to be a reporter someday, and so as soon as I got home, I was glued to the television. My family didn't have cable, and since almost all of the city's major stations housed their transmitters and antennas at the World Trade Center, they were knocked off the air. That left just one network affiliate for me to watch, WCBS, Channel 2, which happened to have a backup transmitter and antenna at the Empire State Building. What I remember most is watching one reporter, Vince Dementri, walk through the wreckage to deliver the only live reports I could see of the most significant story of my lifetime, happening just 10 miles from my house. As my family sat huddled in our living room, we witnessed the surreal scenes of Dementri venturing in and out of burning buildings at Ground Zero, debris falling around him. He choked up at times, but somehow he managed to keep delivering the news, a man on a mission who is taking his place in journalism history. A few years later, I too became a reporter in New York, part of a generation that was compelled to enter the news business because of the critical role that journalists served on September 11th. Earlier this year, the hosts of the Journalism History podcast began brainstorming ideas for episodes to mark the 20th anniversary of that jarring day my mind immediately went to Vince Dementri. So after a lot of online detective work, I tracked him down to Florida, where after nearly 30 years as an investigative reporter and news anchor, Dementri is now a media consultant. The interview was really personal for me, and it was also emotional for him. We had exchanged some emails and called a few times before recording this conversation, to get to know each other and go over some ground rules. I thought he had an important perspective to share, but I knew it couldn't be told without wading into very sensitive topics, and I was concerned about triggering trauma. But Dementri replied without hesitation. No question was off the table. He wanted to share his experience to ensure the memory of September 11th lives on. Vince, I want to start out by thanking you for joining me today. I know this is a very difficult topic to discuss, and you've agreed to get into some sensitive areas, potentially. Um, so thank you for joining us. Uh, it, it's my pleasure, Nick. Uh, hard to believe that uh, 20 years has gone by. Uh, 
for me in a lot of ways. Uh, I relive it every day in some form or fashion. And uh, it's, uh, it was a situation, obviously, that uh, you know, I'll never forget. And like you, uh, millions of other people in New York and around the world uh, watching at home, they'll never forget it. Well, but being there, uh, much, much different than, than watching it. No matter how good the pictures were, the recording might have been, nothing takes the place of actually doing that. Definitely. So I'd like to start with some background on your career leading up to 9-11 to give our listeners a sense of what brought you to covering this momentous story. Uh, you were born and raised in Philadelphia. You studied broadcast journalism at Temple University in the 1980s and then began your career as a sports producer and a weekend anchor at a few local stations in Philly. You hopped around a few stations working as an anchor and investigative reporter in Detroit. You covered the pathologist Jack Kevorkian there, Dr. Death, who championed a terminal patient's right to die. You went to Providence, Rhode Island, Springfield, Illinois. And then in 1994, you head to New York to join WCBS-TV Channel 2, became the anchor of the weekend evening newscast, and led the news team from a perennial third-place newscast to the top spot within only two years, and then received the New York Emmy Award in 1998 for general assignment reporting. So can you just describe where you were at this point in your career in September of 2001? Well, by 2001, uh, in New York, I had been somewhat of a seasoned reporter. I mean, clearly there were, there were other people in the market. Uh, and even at the station, who had no tenure, but uh, it, it may sound a bit braggadocious, and, and I hope it doesn't come off that way. But, uh, you know, I've always been very, very A-type personality. And so it was very important to me that I knew job security was bringing stories to the table, not just accepting what uh, Simon Desk was giving me. So I spent those years from 93 to 01 eventually, when you know, the World Trade Center happened, building quite a network of contacts and sources. You know, my days were 14 to 16 hour days. So it wasn't just you know, working a night shift after 11.30, then I would meet guys and go out and foster those contacts. So by 2001, I was, I was pretty well vested in New York City and, and the metro area. Uh, yeah, I'm sure. Um, and most folks already know what happened on 9-11, but I will go over it in a little bit of detail, especially for younger listeners to refresh memories. Hijackers took control of four commercial airliners en route to California. We know they flew one to the Pentagon. Another was apparently heading to the Capitol building in Washington, D.C. But passengers overtook the hijackers and crashed the plane into a field near Shanksville, Pennsylvania. And then there are the two flights, American Airlines Flight 11 with a crew of 11 people and 76 passengers uh, that flew into the north facade of the North Tower at 8.46 a.m., and then United Airlines Flight 175 crashed into the southern facade of the South Tower at 9.03 a.m. So, Vince, can you just take us to that day, the morning of September 11, 2001? How did you come to be at the World Trade Center? I actually, uh, uh, by, ha- by accident, actually, I-, I was a night shift reporter, which meant I, you know, I came in at 2.30 to report. Uh, I would usually do something for the early newscasts and my main uh, focus was on the 11 o'clock broadcast. Uh, but on that day, I had switched with a reporter because my daughter had a recital that night. And uh, I wanted to be able to get out early so I could make her 7 p.m. Uh, dance recital. So I actually worked a day shift, which was uncommon for me. And at the time, um, 
I was wrapping up some stuff from Wall Street that we were doing. And, um, you know, you have to remember back in the day, you know, it had cell phones, but they weren't of the technology. We were still in their infancy. Uh, we certainly didn't have smartphones. We had those old flip phones. Uh, and we had digital pagers where somebody could type a message on the pager. And that was usually how uh, things were communicated uh, to a reporter in the field. Of course, we had a hard line uh, cell phone in the, in the live band that worked much better than the mobile. It's mobile was very spotty because there just weren't that many towers at the time. Um, so anyhow, I, I remember getting, you know, a 911 on my pager, head to the World Trade Center, uh, news that, I, that I, some sort of plane was crashed in the World Trade Center. And, you know, I threw that in, and next thing we know, I'm hearing sirens and lights, and um, there's a lot of New York City crews to New York. New York news operates in a different way than any other news city I've ever lived in. Uh, and sometimes it's a little bit like the Wild West. And so what news crews often did was, is that, especially on Spot News, is that if there was a line of emergency personnel headed towards wherever they were going, of course, people could clear the way for them and they'd go through lights. We would get up right on their tail and we'd follow them in because... Now we were covering spot news, and it was kind of a practice that was accepted. And that's what happened. We followed them in, and you know, when I got there, we saw the tower, first tower on, on fire, and uh, you know, just started shooting it. And saw the fire department setting up uh, you know, the command center in the lobby of, uh, I believe it was the North Tower. And, uh, you know, by that time, there were Port Authority police and New York City police, and they were trying to get control. And there was a lot of chaos, people running out of the building, uh, and police and whatnot trying to push us back. And, you know, we're trying to say, hey, we're doing our job. We got press passes and this and that. So there was some jostling going on. But it didn't last long because the next thing you know, and this is a famous shot that, you know, we must have shown hundreds of times over the first couple of days, was that second plane that, that literally you know, came around almost as if it was lining up its, its descent in, into the second tower, uh, in South Tower, and, uh, you know, boom, right into it. And when that happened, we all looked at each other and said, you know, obviously <laughs> there, was, uh, there was some cursing going on, and uh, but everybody just stopped and froze, and we were in shock. And you know what, what's happened? That could not have been an accident. You know anybody who's seen it clearly knew this was not an accident of a commercial you know pilot losing his bearing somehow because of the way this plane clearly went around and lined up its its suicide mission. And so that at that time then. The cops and whatnot, they were not concerned with us. They were concerned with getting in the buildings and trying to get people out. So now you have two buildings on fire, engulfed. And, you know, there were news crews all over the place. There were still photographers all over the place. And I just remember that day, a Tuesday morning. Um, you know, it was in the 60s. There was a nice breeze. I remember the sky was just blue. Barely a cloud in the sky. It was a gorgeous morning 
uh, what promised to be a great day in, in New York City. And then all this time later, I, I try to reconcile what, what a beautiful picture, it was, what a beautiful day it was, and then this horror that was starting to unfold. There was this slow, thick, rolling cloud of debris that was just pushing down away from the World Trade Center. And it was probably 12, 13 feet high and just engulfing everything. It was like if you've ever seen a sandstorm, intensify the sandstorm by a hundred and then make it this grayish, whitish cloud moving slowly. It was like a fog just coming down the street and you're trying to outrun it and you realize you can't and you take, you know, me and my photographer took cover in the, in the vestibule or cubbyhole of one of the, of a restaurant just on the outside and hoping that that space, that little nook would protect us. And, you know, we went down and, you know, put our hands over our mouths. It's this rolling cloud of, of debris from the World Trade Center, the concrete dust and whatnot is, is just overtaking you. And then all of a sudden you'd see people emerge from this cloud, just covered head, head to toe in this white soot. And you could see the look on their face of just total shock. I mean, I don't think some of those people knew where they were, who they were, what had happened, what was going to happen. They were walking, nobody, they weren't running. They were just walking like they were on their way to wherever. Yet, they were in the middle of this, covered with this white soot. I remember the businessmen holding briefcases and just had this blank stare on their face. And, yeah, emergency personnel grabbing them up. Um, and then as the day goes by and hours go by, of course, now we're, we're doing live shots and we're trying to figure out what's happened. Who's responsible for this? And then, me and Dan, we start to hear, well, the Pentagon has been hit. And we say, oh, my God, this is a coordinated attack. And then we hear that a, that a plane has gone down in western Pennsylvania in a field. And then it became total panic amongst the, well, Chaos and panic with cops because I've never seen, and obviously they've never seen anything like this before, but the general citizens, the people of New York, there was just extreme panic. I remember people, if they could drive, driving, like, I hate to use the phrase, but it's apropos, like a bat out of hell, because the streets were empty. You know, they had closed the city off. And there were some people who were able to get into the vehicles and drove like a bat out of hell to get away from there. And God forbid if you got in their way, I, you know, I know for a fact I had to dodge a couple of cars and they would have run me over. Uh, that's what the kind of panic was going on. Like this was some alien invasion. And then, you know, we're hearing all this, reporting this. I'm trying to get a hold of sources. And I had friends at the Port Authority. I had four friends I worked with in the Port Authority. And I'm trying to page them to see if they're okay. And I'm not getting any responses. I'm calling their cell phones. And by that time, the cell phones were dead. And so 
I didn't have I didn't have any facial protection, and really I didn't get any until later in, in the afternoon. All it was was a, a carpenter's dust mask, but I was glad to have something. Um, but my I, my instinct was just I got to get to where the story is, and the story is there. And what I mean there is like in front of me, and I got to find a way to get there. Um, and that meant sometimes trying to go around officers sneak around them, hope they didn't see you because they were going to stop you and, and forbid you from getting into that area. And I understand what they were doing. But as I said, you know, something like this had never happened before. And at this point, I realized in my head that what was happening was history. And being the A-type personality that I was, uh, I thought it was my job my obligation and my adrenaline was running to how to get as close as I could to see what was left. What were the firefighters doing? What were the police doing? Were there rescues? Uh, you know, could we get photos of, of them getting people out? Were the people trapped? Just what did it look like? You know, did the whole building fall? Did only half the building fall? And when I came out the backside, I thought I had gone onto the set of a disaster movie. Um, that's when I saw dozens of cars just charred down to the base metal. Uh, MTA buses charred to the base metal. Fire department of Port Authority cars just crushed with, you know, giant boulders of concrete through the roof or the hood or whatever. And just flaming debris on the street. Just piles of, of flames just on the street. And just six inches, eight inches of just, just this thick, thick, dirty, dank, dark dust with whatever that mixture was, that concoction, just on the street. And you couldn't help but walk through it. And I remember getting it up to my, you know, above my ankles. And I look up. And, you know, at the time, I didn't know it was World Trade Center because I was on the back side of it. Now, on any other day, normal day, I would have known the layout, but everything was so, so cockeyed and so crazy. The post office building was to the left, and I saw a giant crack in the building. It almost was like the crack of the Liberty Bell in its facade. And then straight ahead, I saw this orange glow, and I knew that that had to be you know, the smoldering embers of one of the towers, and I wanted to get there, but I couldn't because that was right across the street from the, you know, the post office was the back, the sidewall of, of World Trade 7, and that was fully engulfed in the upper floors, and the closer you got to it, the heat just hit you like a broiler. I mean, if you've ever opened a hot oven at 500 degrees and you opened it and you stick your face, you get hit with that, that just that plume of heat. And you have some semblance of what I'm talking about. And that heat kept us back. And so we were probably maybe 15 yards away from the back side of it, but could still see the side of the building, World Trade Center, and just that glow of the embers of you know, I think what I learned later to be the South Tower. As we were going in, I forgot this, as we were going in, 
and we were in one of the buildings, we heard this voice, who's there? Who's there? Stop. Who's there? So we stopped and, we, and I said, it's, you know, Channel 2, Channel 2, reporter, photographer, and a sergeant for the Port Authority came in. And I happened to know him. And he said, Vince, what are you, what are you doing? And I said, we're just, you know, just doing our job. We're, you know, we're photographing and reporting on what we see. And he said, you know, we got this all cordoned off. You know, the building's on fire outside. And at that time, I hadn't been outside. And I said, yeah. I said, but, you know, I mean, you know what's going on. I said, I got to do what I got to do unless you, you know, you want to throw me out. That's your prerogative. And he looked at me and he said, no. He says, I just want to know what you're getting yourself into. He said, there's nobody out there. We are purposely away from this building because we don't know if it's going to collapse. But you do what you think you got to do. And I said to the sergeant, his first name, I said, okay, I appreciate it. Thank you. And he looked at me and he said, Godspeed, brother. And that's when we went out and we saw you know, the building on fire go through its oven. I'm also just wondering all of this overwhelming visual that you're describing as you're trying to just understand your own safety, what's happening around you. You're hearing reports of what's happening in Pennsylvania and Washington, D.C., trying to wrap your mind around it. But I mentioned at the outset that at this time, nearly 80% of New York markets, 7.3 million TV homes were getting TV from cable and satellite. Mm-hmm. And Time Warner and Cablevision were able to continue carrying the broadcast signals because they received them via fiber links rather than off the air. But I was among that other 20% of families that didn't have cable. And when those transmitters and antennas went down atop the World Trade Center, all that was left was WCBS Channel 2. And you were a big, prominent part of that broadcast because you had that backup transmitter and antenna at the Empire State Building. So I'm wondering at what point in all of this do you realize that you're the only TV reporter on any of these local stations for this uh, segment of the population like myself? Oh, I didn't know for probably till the next day. I had, I had no clue. Um, nor did I, did I, I, you know, my wife at the time, you know, beat me, <laughs> literally punched me. Uh, you know, it was three days before I went home. Uh, and she didn't know if I was dead or alive. Um, and I'll get back to what happened at Red Church 7 and, and conclude that. Uh, she didn't know if I was dead or alive because I couldn't contact her. Because as I said, the you know, cell phone towers were down. And cell phone service at that time was, was pretty spotty to begin with because it was still in its kind of its infancy. So she'd have to watch Channel 2, like you. And I was also, when I finally came out of World Trade 7, I would do, in between hits for local, I would be doing hits for national. So she would have to wait to see me on television to know that I was okay. But, yeah, she'd see me once, and then... Maybe she didn't see me again for an hour or another half hour. And, but then the phone was ringing incessantly from friends and family around the country who would, be, you know, who would call the house and, on a landline and, and say, hey, I, don't know, I just saw Vince in CBS. He's, I don't know if you know, but he's okay. Uh, you know, all this crazy stuff is happening and he's, he's in the middle of it, but he's okay. Uh, and my daughter was five and a half, and I'll, and I'll, I'll get to that story, which was pretty poignant. Uh, a little bit later, but to take you back as we're about to leave, what really made me leave was I didn't have fear for my safety, you know, stupid as I was. Um, 
I guess I was just too amped up on adrenaline and too focused on, on, on getting the story. And I don't want to sound callous because I, I don't mean it to be callous. I certainly knew what was going on, and, and I was certainly affected by, by the carnage that I had seen. But, you know, kind of like first responders, I had seen a lot already, too. And, you know, you got you to gotta compartmentalize, I learned as a reporter. And, um, you know, a lot of times you're in dangerous situations. Well, it was the first time. Nothing like this, but for the first time. And so I wasn't really thinking about my safety um, until, uh, you know, I like to think maybe there's some divine intervention. As I told you, those windows would pop. This was about the sixth window that popped out. And when it hit the ground, you know, the next thing I know, a, a chunk about a little larger than a silver dollar whacked me in the thigh. It didn't break my, you know, the, the pants. It didn't break through to the skin, but it stung. And I looked down and I picked it up and the glass was hot and I dropped it. I still had the glass. And then all of a sudden, butterflies start going off. You know, that feeling in your stomach. Hey, something's not right here. You know, maybe it's time to go. And so the stomach is connecting to the brain and, you know, my senses are starting to kick in. And I'm looking at, at you know, the building, like I said, you know, Later turned out, I would find out on my way out that it was World Trade Seven. Um, my brain starts saying, "Well, maybe it's time to go." And I looked at Terrence Nelson, who was who was the photographer, and I said, "Hey, Terrence, I think we got enough. We've been here like forty five minutes." I said, "How are we doing?" He says, "Yeah, man." He says, "I'm just about out of juice, battery power, and we just got out of tape. You know, we got to go." And I said, "Okay, come on. I think we got enough. Let's go." So we started to weave our way out. As we're weaving our way out, I see a, a battalion chief, and he starts cursing. I mean, he's throwing the F-bomb at me and turns left and right. What the F are you guys doing? Do you have any idea what is going on there? And we're like, whoa, chief, calm down. You know, we're just doing our job. You could have died, you idiots. You you were the only ones there. Did you see anybody else? And he said, no. And he said, there's a reason for that. We've got a two-block area cordoned off. That thing's ready to collapse. We don't know if it's going to collapse. And I said, well, what building is it? He goes, it's World Trade 7. And I said, wow. I said, I didn't know. And he said, get the mm out of here now. So our live truck was stationed on West Street. And when I got to the live shot, Steve Bykowski was running the truck and the camera for the live shot. And I said to Steve, because you could see the upper floors from our vantage point on the ground on West Street, you could see the upper floors of, of WTC7. And just because you could see smoke from where it was, it was probably with, uh, maybe five, six blocks away. And I said to Steve, I said, keep the camera trained on that building. And I pointed to the building. And I said, I, you know, I've just been told, we were this there. I said, you know, we had another truck operator. And I said, can you feed the tape? I said, uh, that thing's in danger of collapse. Could it collapse any minute now? I said, whatever you do, you keep that camera on that building unless we're going, you know, I'm going live. And um, sure enough, I'm going live. And the next thing I know is I remember they're about to take my tape. And in the background, 
when we actually have some clips of this. Um, so if I can, you know, play, I did cut a few clips of your reporting from Seven World Trade Center, and I'd like the listeners to hear this um, and you to react to it. Uh, this first clip that we can play, you're standing several blocks away from Seven World Trade Center. This is a little bit earlier in the day. A uh, 47-story building that was above a power substation, and when the North Tower collapsed, as you mentioned, the debris damaged the building and sparked fires throughout it. Um, and then, you know, we're we're going to get into you being in the building. So, if you just uh, bear with me. We have our reporters out on the field. Vince Dementri is joining us right now. He is live in Lower Manhattan. Vince. I can tell you, uh, I've just been a place that I have uh, been to that. Frankly, uh, no firefighters want to go to. Behind me, UC Burning 7 World Trade Center. I didn't know it at the beginning, at the tape you're about to see. I didn't know it was the 7 World Trade Center. But I know it now coming back. A four-block radius has been cordoned off because fire officials expect that building to collapse. I've been within 10 feet of that building within the last 15 minutes. I've been as close to where no one wants to be. Take a look. We are in an abandoned skyscraper, and quite frankly, I don't even know where I'm at. I see a sign outside that just gives me a reference of Barclay Street. As you can see all around here, the windows have been blown completely out. And as we take to a walk towards the front, towards the front of the building here, you want to take a look outside. If you have never been to war, like I have never been to war, then this is what it looks like. We don't know what that building is. We don't know where, where this building is, but they're obviously on fire. Maybe in, in, in there's a chance that they could collapse. I've been on this earth for 37 years. I've never been to a war, but I can only imagine that uh, this is as close as I've ever come. You know, I know you were the only TV correspondent to gain access to World Trade Center Building 7 while it was on fire in danger of collapse. We're going to be playing some other clips. But as I mentioned, you were clearly risking your own safety in this moment. As I was just playing it back, we are right now recording so that I can see your reaction. And I know you were closing your eyes, and I'm sure this is difficult to relive. So do you remember what was going through your mind at that moment and what's going through your mind now as you relive it? Well, I closed my eyes because I, I, as, as I'm hearing myself, the real, the, the picture real is playing in my head. And, and, and I can tell you exactly where I was. We went through an abandoned building. I think later I learned that it was the Verizon building. And when I went in, and I think I had mentioned it earlier, the vestibule was just you know, just destroyed. There was debris, litter, everything, everywhere. Windows all knocked out. And the door window was completely wide. And I think I believe I stepped through the window and talked about I'd never been to war, which is true. And uh, then going outside and then seeing, like I said, the, you know, all the cars incinerated and then there's building on fire. But you know, I'm trying to think of what was going through my head, and 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 I gotta be—I'll be very honest with you. I do remember what was going through my head. I was just—and and please don't don't—you know—some people think it's it, it's callous, and it wasn't. It was, it was 
trust me, I, I've relived this a long, long time. Um, but what I was thinking was, what I was thinking on, on many stories, you know, okay, let's make sure we get this in frame, telling a photographer, hey, listen, I'm going to do a stand-up here, give him a three, two, one count, and then just talk off the top of my head, just talk about what I'm saying, just whatever comes to mind. Uh, nothing was, was rehearsed, nothing was staged, nothing was written down, uh, it was just three, two, one, let's, let's just add lip. This is what I see. This is what I feel. And that's what I did. That's what I talked about. Uh, there was no concern for safety. Uh, it was just, it was just reporter instinct. I guess that's the only thing I can say. Reporter instinct took over at that point. You know, and a lot of times that, you know, we thought as reporters, and, and you know, we're not the story. The story is the story. Uh, I couldn't help but say, well, that rule's got to go out the window because I am part of the story now because I'm in a place nobody else is. And I think it's appropriate to share my emotions, what I'm feeling and what I'm seeing on this particular story. This next clip is perfect suited to what you were just talking about. As you mentioned, journalists are often taught we're supposed to be neutral, dispassionate. You are not the story. Leave your emotions at the door. Avoid favoring any side of it. But that concept has been challenged many, many times over the years, especially in coverage of disasters like you were doing. And this was a very personal story for you, very emotional. So I want to play this next clip because that gets into some of your emotion and then have you react to it on the other end. The firefighter that you heard in that piece, his name is Lieutenant John Jinta. He talked about wanting to cry at the sight of what he saw. I can now identify with what he's talking about. He talked about bodies in the street. I didn't see any. He talked about people being trapped in that rubble. But as many of you well know, and I, I'm, frankly, I'm not sure who's on the anchor desk, but I have many friends in the law enforcement community, and I've talked to friends of theirs today, and I found out that many of my friends are in that building, one or two that have collapsed. And uh, you try to distance yourself from this stuff, but when it hits home, it's a far different story. So my prayers right now go out to their families and the families of everyone who's been affected by this. I'll throw it back to you in the studio. It's, uh, we, we join you in what you have just expressed, and uh, we're also very sorry about the, uh, the, the personal involvement that you have in that story. So at the end of that clip, we hear the anchor Ernie Anastas, and I also find that clip interesting because it shows that you really weren't able to keep communication with the studio the entire time. You admit on air, I'm not even sure who's on the anchor desk. You later find out that it's Ernie Anastas and Dana Tyler live on the air. Uh, but uh, you know, you're know, you acknowledging in that moment your own emotion. Uh, how, if you're a good reporter, you're going to develop relationships with sources in law enforcement. And then we're seeing right behind you the sirens and the, you know, the firefighters and the police, some of whom you've obviously established, you know, relationships with professionally over the years. So what was that like? That was, uh, that was, that was, that was tough. And it was difficult to, uh, if you see that clip, I think you, you'll see me several times uh, look away from the camera. Um, and, and that's, that's in an effort to try to keep my emotions in check, try to keep from uh, 
So, you know, I would look away and try to check my emotions. And, and as I was talking, I was thinking about, you know, the seven, seven friends I had, Port Authority, FDNY, NYPD. Things were happening so rapidly, you didn't have time to think because you were, con- you were on the air nonstop. And at that point, I was leading the coverage for, for Channel 2. And in between doing hits for CBS affiliates, the network. So I didn't have a lot of time to stop and think. Um, it was just in the go mode, you know, find out what you can, uh, directing my photography, the photography working with me, you know, listen, try to get where you can, try to bring me whatever you can. And then, you know, the minutes I would have in between trying to get a hold of contacts to see what was, what was happening and what was going on. And, um, you know, a lot of this stuff didn't hit me for days. You know, you just kind of, I don't want to say autopilot, but you just, you know, my journalistic instincts took over and you were just running on pure adrenaline. And as I said, you know, you know the ethical things are, you know, some of the things you might not have reported on another story. Um, I felt that it was appropriate to report on this story. Um, emotions, you don't want never to show. Being part of the story, making yourself part of the story. And to me, that went out the window. This was something we had never seen, the likes of which we've never seen. God, God help us if we never see something like that again. So I said, you can take journalism one-on-one, that book, and you can throw it out the window. Yeah, definitely. I'm going to go with my experience and what I feel is appropriate and right. And if I get criticized later, I get criticized for it. But um, this, is, this is what I'm going to do, and that's what I do. You know, you mentioned in one of the clips uh, that you try to distance yourself from these sorts of things, but when it hits home, it becomes a different story. And this is where I'd like to get into how your reporting on September 11th affected you then and continues to perhaps affect you today. Um, I want to just read this quote. There's Columbia University's DART Center for Journalism and Trauma that put out a report it says, quote, journalists are professional first responders to crisis and disasters, but they're among the last of those groups to recognize the psychological implications of that responsibility, end quote. Um, so the DART Center does focus on ethical and thorough reporting of trauma. So when you yourself are interviewing people who've just experienced something traumatic, like running out of those buildings, but again, we sometimes don't reflect on ourselves and how that can influence us, you know, reporters who cover war. Uh, have you dealt with any long-term effects of that reporting that day? Oh, sure. Absolutely. I'll tell you something, and you can believe it, you can't believe it. That's, that's entirely up to you, but my wife will, will test to it. Um, four or five days a week. This is God's honest truth. I'll be sitting in my office like I am now, or maybe I'm sitting and I'm watching television. And four or five days a week, whether it be morning or night, I'll be typing in my office, let's say, in the morning, and I'll just glance at the clock. And then they'll say 9-11. 
sitting with my family at night, watching a program. Time is, as many of us do, I wonder what time it is. Once the clock, 9 11. And right away, as soon as I see 9 11, the highlight reel starts going. And uh, yeah, it happens to me four or five times a week. And I, I swear to you, I swear to you, I'm a psychopath that that happens to me. Uh, I don't know why, obviously. Uh, I don't know, six cents, seven cents. I, I have no idea, but it, but it happens. Um, there are certain smells, sounds. Um, that I'll see or smell or sense or hear a song, uh, see something on television that'll, that'll take me back. Yeah. Well, you know, again, thank you. Thank you for your willingness to go into all of this because I know it's such a challenge um, to discuss it and um, all these vivid memories are coming back and I can understand the emotion. Um, I, I know this is, you know, another part of this that you and I have talked about before we recorded the podcast, but now that we're talking about 9-11 20 years later in 2021, you know, at the time it seemed like the most cataclysmic event imaginable and something that would never be forgotten. Nearly 3,000 people were killed immediately in those attacks, about 2,600 at the World Trade Center plus 400 others at the Pentagon in Pennsylvania. And you mentioned how many others have died over the past 20 years from 9-11 related illnesses. And in those months right after September 11th, I was living in New York. I remember seeing all of those banners and murals going up across the city, across the nation with the words, never forget. But even though it felt like a once in a lifetime event that would linger in the public consciousness for many, many years, historians often warn that we should wait to evaluate the impact of an event for at least 20 years, which is the milestone we're coming up on now, to see if it does stand the test of time. How significant does society view it many years later? And as you and I have discussed, in the years since, we've seen a wave of tragedies, mass shootings, tornadoes, hurricanes, and of course now a pandemic that has killed hundreds of thousands of people in the United States. And it's not to mitigate any one tragedy over another, but it's just that as more recent events happen, I think that takes away from some of the, um, you know, the the memory, unfortunately, of 9-11. So I'm wondering... How do you feel about this? How concerned are you that 20 years later, memories of September 11th are starting to fade away? I'm, I'm very concerned. And, and I think if you recall, when you first contacted me and asked me if I would be willing to talk about my experience um, for your podcast, I was very eager to do it because of that very reason. Too many people, I think, in this country, I don't know if they're numb to it, but they don't want to think about it. But uh, what happened on 9-11 wasn't just a tragedy. It wasn't just horrific. It changed the world. It changed the way we live as Americans. TSA didn't exist Homeland security did not exist. All of the security measures that you see today, FISA court, the war in Iraq, the war in Afghanistan, the Patriot Act, uh, video cameras everywhere, 
data mining, none of that existed prior to 9-11. All of that and more is the result of 9-11. And I don't believe people have really sat down and thought about not just the day, but the ripple effect of how it's changed our lives. The world changed immeasurably in the days, the weeks, the months, the years following that. This is something that, that needs and has to be remembered. I don't care if you live in Timbuktu in the northern reaches of Alaska, farthest sands of Hawaii. Everybody needs to remember and pray to God that it never ever happened again. And also look at the fallout and what's happened afterwards. Thousands of American men and women who went to war patriotically to get the bad guys with you there who lost their lives. Thousands of others came home not whole, whether they lost limbs, they had traumatic brain injuries, they'll never be the same. So I think it's a real shame if uh, we just kind of sweep it under the rug and just say, uh, oh, that is so horrible, we don't want to think about it, as we so often do. Well, sometimes things are, are painful for a reason, so you don't forget. So you don't let up again. So you don't make yourself lax and you're an easy target. And you make sure that another tragedy like this, that your child or your grandchild doesn't ever have to go through something like that. One, well, as we close out the episode, that really goes to the heart of the question that we often ask at the end is you're talking about the importance of remembering this event. And also, I think it's important to remember the careers of the journalists like yourself who were brave enough to go into burning buildings and report there. Um, as I mentioned, when I was watching that moment on live television with no other television station to turn to, I just remember thinking, wow, this is exactly the reason why I'm an aspiring journalist. You can bring news of value to people who have no other means of getting it. And I was thinking, I don't think I could ever be as brave as Vince Dementri um, going into these buildings at that moment. Uh, but it's important to recognize your kind of service there uh, that, you know, that continues to linger in the public consciousness now that we have a record of something that otherwise would have gone unseen. Well, I appreciate the, the, the kind words, Nick, but uh, I, I don't consider myself brave. I, I was just, I was doing my job. I was doing my job. And, and I realized, it took me a little bit, but within hours I realized, you know, after learning the Pentagon, and, you know, Shanksville, the plane going down outside of Pittsburgh, and we were dealing with something really evil. We didn't know it was Osama bin Laden at the time. We didn't know it was a group called Al-Qaeda, but we certainly knew it was some sort of terrorist for them, and that we were under attack. And what a lot of people don't know is that it was... There was tremendous pushback in the, in the early days and early hours from, from well, I don't want to criticize them because I, I might have been the same way had I been in their shoes. 
but there was a lot of criticism against the media that we were ghouls and we were vultures and we were sensationalists and all we wanted to show were the dead bodies and the people jumping out of the buildings and what was left of the World Trade Center. And I can tell you, uh, obviously it's the biggest story of my career and I've had a lot, been involved in a lot of big stories, national and world stories, but I'd be happy to give that up any day of the week, if I could say, wipe it away and say that never happened. Take it away. So we had to fight. And if people go back and they, they do the, you know, journalists, there were a lot of journalists who were arrested, uh, who were properly credentialed because they found they found themselves in a, in a cordoned off zone. You know, uh, you know, 20 years later now, it's like, oh, wow, this guy was at World Trade 7, you know, and I've gotten a ton of accolades. And I remember in the days following, weeks and months following, I got a lot of letters from people. And not a one of them was negative. Very complimentary. And, and people telling me that they, that I was their lifeline in a way. You know, they lived in Queens or they lived in Brooklyn or Staten Island or the upper reaches of Manhattan. And I was their lifeline as to what was happening. And I was a common voice. And they appreciated uh, sharing the emotion that I had. I'd meet people in the street in the days following, and people would come up and hug me, tell me they watched me. And that was very gratifying. Um, but I'm not going to lie to you. Um, in those early days, it was very hard to do the job. Very hard. And we, uh, there were forces against us that did not, and I say us, I mean journalists in general, that did not want us to have access to um, the World Trade Center site. Mm-hmm. Well, and you know, thank you for sharing the uh, kind of challenges that you were facing. As I was watching some of the clips, I could see police backing you away. And I'm sure you had a lot of just challenges physically getting from location to cl- location. Of course, the communication with sources, with the studio, we've gone over all of that. Yeah. As we wrap up, since you are on the Journalism History Podcast, I want to just ask you this closing question that we always have um, for guests, and usually they are scholars of journalism history, but I would like to ask you as a journalist who witness history, why does journalism history matter? Oh my, oh my God. Why does journalism history matter? Because if it's done right, you know, you, you've often heard the phrase that history is written by the victors. But if journalism is done right, and there's not, as we so often see today, a biased angle or a biased network. If you're a Republican, you watch this one. If you're a Democrat, you watch this thing. It didn't exist in 2001 and prior to that. So I will answer your question simply. If a journalist does his or her job properly and does their best to be as unbiased as they possibly can and do their best to get all sides, because it's not always two sides, to get all sides and tell the best possible story they can with what they have, that that's our real history. 
not some biased history written by the victors, where the losers don't have a chance to say, oh, but wait a minute. You guys are the, you want to make yourselves out to the good guys. You did some bad things, too. It's the journalists who point out, yeah, the good guys might have done this, but they did some bad things, too. And it's that reason that journalistic history, in my mind, is part of the fiber and often goes unappreciated, part of the fiber of this country and what it stands for. It's under attack now. It's changed since I've left the business. I'm not going to get into that whole thing. That's maybe another podcast if you want to do that with me. But if you want to talk about why journalism history is important, because as I said, if it's done right, then you get to read the good, the bad, and the ugly. And for our listeners who would like to mark the 20th anniversary of September 11th by seeing some of those pictures and hearing some of those sounds, you should certainly go on YouTube and look up some of Vince's reports from September 11th on CBS. We thank CBS because they allowed us to play the audio from some of those clips as part of the podcast today, uh, which was just a, a nice way of, I think, understanding, um, you know, get the full comprehensive picture of really what was going down. Vince, I know we could talk for hours about this subject. You have a, a lot to say about it. Um, you know, as we wrap up, I just want to thank you so much for spending the time again to tackle something that can be very difficult to kind of get into, but that we both agree is so important to maintain the memory of September 11th. Um, and just uh, for a younger generation who may never be exposed to this otherwise, this podcast is sometimes used as a teaching tool by a lot of journalism professors. So hopefully they get a, a better sense of what reporters really went through that day. Thank you for taking the time to do that. Nick, it's my pleasure and, and hats off to you because without people like you teaching this, the new generation and you're coming out of school and, and the journalists that are now entering the field and, and having this podcast, to mark history, be gracious enough and kind enough to ask people like myself to recount their stories, they wouldn't get out there. So I want to thank you. I think you're doing a yeoman's job, and uh, I hope there are many others around the country that are attempting to do this and are doing this because uh, you can't forget. You can't forget this. You can't just put this in the rear view mirror. It's a great way to finish. Never forget. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for tuning in, and additional thanks to our sponsor, Taylor and Francis. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter at J History Journal. Until next time, I'm your host, Nick Hershon, signing off with the words of Edward R. Murrow. Good night and good luck. <laughs>